Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Gundog by Gary Witta Chapter 17 I present to you the M151 Armored Combat Biped, or ACB, said Rosie, as Dakota and Runyon continued to stare agog at the metal giant that loomed over them like a menacing statue. Is this like the gundog you piloted at Bismarck? Dakota asked. Not quite, said Rosie. This is way more advanced a prototype for what we hoped would be a new armored legion. Just a few brigades of these might have turned the tide of the entire war. If only we'd had time to build them. Of course, these past twenty years, I've had nothing but time. I've done all I can with the facility's automated systems to get this one finished, but it still needs some work that can only be done with human hands. Electrical, hydraulics, a few mechanical adjustments, and, of course, it needs a pilot and a gunner to operate it. It's going to take two of us, Dakota recalled Falk telling her. What makes this one different? Runyon asked. Very good question, said Rosie. The first-gen gundogs incorporated mech technology only on a superficial level. Stronger armor, more powerful weapons. Good but not enough. This one is the real deal. The most cutting-edge mech tech integrated right down to the core system level. It has the same deflector shielding the best mech battle units have, a stealth array that should, theoretically, render it virtually invisible to their sensors and satellites, countermeasures up the ass, and, best of all, a particle reprocessor similar to the ones used by their reclaimers, but better. A particle what? said Dakota. The M-151 can salvage material and components found in the field, scrap metal, old shell casings, anything, and recycle it into particulate matter that can be used for almost any purpose it requires, Rosie explained, replacing or restoring damaged systems, creating new munitions, pretty much anything. It can repair and rearm itself, said Runyon. Very good, said Rosie. I knew you were a smart one. How is it powered? Runyon asked. Cold fusion fuel pod, and the entire surface of the armor is one big solar array. Theoretically, it's capable of decades of independent operation. There was that word again. Theoretically? Dakota said. This is still only a prototype. The newer systems have never been tested in the field. Some haven't even been tested in the lab, but now that you're here, that's all going to change. You're going to help me get this thing operational. And then, 
I'm going to teach you how to operate it. And then what? Runyon asked. I mean, even if we get it working, what do we do with it? Fight a new war against the mech? By ourselves? As far as the mech are concerned, the war's long over, said Rosie. They stood down most of their heavy military capacity years ago, sent it back to their homeworld. What remains here is a relatively small occupying force, and they're not expecting a new human offensive. She turned her face toward the gundog, looking up at it with the admiration of a proud mother. And they're sure as hell not expecting this. It's just one weapon, said Dakota. Like nothing the mech have ever seen, Rosie said. And sometimes, all it takes is one person to inspire others to stand up and fight, too. Especially once they've been armed with the most powerful weapon of all. The truth. It was then that Dakota and Runyon learned that everything they'd grown up believing about the mech, and about the Ten-Year War, was a lie. The mech did not come to us in peace the way they've taught you to believe, Rosie began. There was no dialogue, no offer of advanced alien technology and mutual cooperation. They came out of nowhere and attacked us without warning, without negotiation, without mercy. The first cities were rubble before we even knew what was happening. We would later learn that we were far from their first victims and that every encounter is the same. They invade a planet with overwhelming force, occupy it, then enslave its population and strip its resources. They're a conqueror species, through and through. Toward the end of the war, when we had begun to figure out how to intercept some of their comm traffic, we learned what they had planned for us and how they intended to keep the human population in line once the war was over. They would control us not only with force and fear, but with shame. The mech had done extensive psychological research on us long before they arrived, and their master algorithm had calculated we could best be controlled by propagating the lie that we were the aggressors, that we had earned our enslavement by starting a war against a benign race that had come to us in peace. The mech understood that if we believed we deserved our fate, we'd be more likely to accept it, and their insight has been proven true for twenty years now. But I've seen the tapes, said Runyon. The history. Dakota had seen them, too. Everyone had. The new township arrivals were forced to watch them as part of orientation. And just in case you forgot, they were also broadcast throughout the day on giant video screens set up all around the compound. The usual sequence started with archival news footage of the mech's arrival when their machine ambassador came down from the first ship to land in what used to be New York City, to be greeted by dignitaries from Earth. Some of those news broadcasts showed people talking about a bold new dawn for mankind, a new era of interplanetary cooperation, but others showed world leaders addressing the citizens of their nations, soberly explaining why the mech could not be trusted, and why it was therefore necessary to attack them before they attacked us. These tapes were always followed by footage of fighter planes and long-range missiles destroying mech ships, idling in their landing areas in cities around the world. Altogether, it made for a neatly plotted video history of how humanity had betrayed the mech. 
a history that was seared into the consciousness of every worker in every township. It's all fake, said Rosie. Edited and composited by the mech from the true historical record to tell the story they need you to believe. The story that keeps you compliant. There's an old saying. History is written by the victors. And that's exactly what the mech did. They rewrote our history. That's why they killed everyone over a certain age after the war. Why even now the townships are filled with workers who are too young to remember what really happened back then. They didn't want anyone left alive who knew the truth. Dakota and Runyon sat in stunned silence for a long time. It was Runyon who finally spoke. You want to tell everyone the truth. Exactly right, said Rosie. And then? What do you expect them to do? Rise up, said Rosie. Fight back. Against the Mac, said Dakota. They'd be slaughtered. Some of them. Yes. But if enough of them start to resist all at once, then it might be more than the Mech can handle. There are millions of people in townships all across this country, and countless more across the world. A few troublemakers here and there, the Mech know how to deal with. But thousands? Millions rising up and resisting in unison? We'll see. Do you really think that's what will happen? Renian asked. That they'll all fight? That will be up to them, said Rosie. We'll show them the truth. They will have to decide what they want to do with it. But my guess is, they'd rather fight, even if it means they die fighting, than live in a cage they know they never deserve to be in. Maybe it's been forgotten these past twenty years. But that's what humans do. It's what we've always done. We fight for what we believe is right. And the truth, as another saying goes, will set them free. Dakota had never heard that saying before, but it sounded right. And the idea of returning to her own township to save Sam sounded even better. How? she asked. How do we show them the truth? We're going to Bismarck, said Rosie to the city the mech built on its ruins. That's where they keep all their secrets. We're going to go in there, and we're going to take them. And that, she went on to explain, was just the beginning. Dakota and Runyon spent the rest of the day reading manuals and watching instructional films designed as basic orientation for rookie gundog pilots and gunners. You can't just drive this thing off the lot, Rosie had said. You need to familiarize yourself with every subsystem, every nut and bolt. Typically, it takes about twelve weeks to train a new gundog pilot or gunner to basic operational proficiency. We are going to do it in seven days. Why so fast? Runyon had asked. And Rosie once again explained that if the mech were interrogating Sam, and attempting to extract the map that was once on his arm from his memory then this base wouldn't be safe for long. The enemy would, in time, show up in overwhelming force. 
Rosie didn't even like staying here for another week, but it was the absolute bare minimum necessary for the crash training course she'd hurriedly designed. And even that abbreviated version called for Dakota and Runyon to work and study around the clock and drink the base's coffee supply dry. They very nearly did. The next day and the next, they read more manuals, watched more films, listened to more safety lectures from Rosie. The time went hard for Runyon in particular, who was growing increasingly impatient to move past the textbooks and get his hands on the 600 tons of military hardware waiting tantalizingly in the room Rosie called a hangar. His uncanny knack for memorization gave him a huge advantage with this rapid learning curriculum. He aced every test Rosie gave him, and when Dakota struggled to keep up, he helped her study, quizzed her, made sure she was up to speed, though she knew she would never remember as many details as he did. On day four, Rosie finally announced that they were done with theory and ready to move on to practical hands-on instruction. Dakota and Runyon were still eating breakfast, but Runyon leapt up from his unfinished meal, clapped his hands together, and started off in the direction of the gundog hangar. Rosie materialized in front of him to cut him off. Not so fast, she said. Isn't it that way? asked Runyon, confused. You're out of your mind if you think I'm letting you in that thing before you've got some sense of how she handles, said Rosie. <laughs> then how do we- Simulator. Follow me. The simulator was a mostly faithful recreation of a gundog's cockpit pod. About the size of a truck cab, it seated two, with the gunner situated forward and the pilot behind and above. This one had been built to train operators on the earlier M-150 model but Rosie explained that there were only minor differences in the tactical and drive systems, and that the simulator would adequately prepare them for the real thing. First of all, said Rosie, you two need to figure out which is the pilot and which is the gunner, who wants to drive and who wants to shoot. I'll shoot, said Dakota and Runyon simultaneously. Figure it out, said Rosie. Trust me, when every step you take shakes the earth at your feet, the driving's pretty fun, too. Which were you? Dakota asked. I was a gunner, said Rosie. Damn good one, too. Dakota looked expectantly at Runyon and waited. After a long moment, he rolled his eyes and threw up his arms. Fine, he said. I'll drive. They climbed into their respective seats, which were padded and comfortable, but smelled musty and old. The helmets they had to put on smelled even worse. Then Rosie sealed the pod and powered it up, activating a suite of holographic instruments for both pilot and gunner, and the whole interior of the pod became a wraparound screen that perfectly recreated the field of view from a real gundog cockpit. The visual fidelity was remarkable. To Dakota and Runyon, it truly appeared that they were no longer in the hangar, but outside on an open, rocky plain. And they appeared to be about 20 meters off the ground, the same height they'd be once they climbed into the real thing. Initiate startup sequence, said Rosie. The simulator made a high-pitched whirr, like an engine starting to spin up, and the whole pod began to rumble and vibrate around them. We're at power, Runyon said. Drive systems pre-check, said Rosie. 
Runyon scanned the display and indicators before him. Primary drive is green. Secondary drive is green. Fuel pot at maximum. All systems in the green and standing by. Weapons pre-check, said Rosie. That was Dakota's job, and she was prepared for it. She'd gone over the procedure in theory a hundred times, and yet now, in the moment, she froze, unable to even remember the first step. Her hand hovered over the instrument panel, uncertain. Left arm, right arm, Runyon prompted from behind her. Directly in front of you, the red display. I know, I know, she snapped, frustrated with herself but taking it out on him, then zeroed in on the correct controls. Left arm loaded and ready. Safety on. Right arm, loaded and ready. Safety on. 40 millimeters are hot. 170 cal. Particle beam. Rocket pods. Flamethrower. All online and green. Very good, said Rosie. Just one thing you've forgotten. She waited for them both to remember, then got impatient. Seat belts. Buckle up, kids. Because this thing will rattle your teeth right out of your skull. The next three days were far more entertaining than the first three had been, but no less demanding. They spent 16 hours a day in the simulator. Rosie gave Dakota a never-ending series of virtual mech targets to shoot at and generated remorselessly rugged terrain for Runyon to negotiate as pilot. And Rosie had dialed the simulator's hydraulic motion system up to 110% to really toss them around. From her own experience, she explained, the simulator never really prepared you for the real thing. To Dakota, this was real enough. The pod lurched and twisted and spun them around with each simulated movement of the gun dog as it strutted and darted and bobbed and weaved to evade incoming fire. By the time each day was done, Dakota and Runyon were both stiff as boards, and any sensation in their backsides was a distant memory. Every night they wolfed down some quick calories, limped back to their bunks, and slept more soundly than they had thought possible. At the end of their seventh and final day of training, Rosie sat them down for an evaluation. Dakota reached around to grasp her aching back as she lowered herself onto a cafeteria bench beside an equally exhausted Runyon. They both ignored their food as they awaited the results. I think we did good, Runyon said to Dakota. She was about to agree with him when Rosie cut her off. You both did terribly, she said. Bregman, you scored more misses than you did hits. You overheated your 40 mic at least a dozen times, and you nearly cut off your ride's left foot with a particle beam. Runyon, your point-to-point -point navigating is woeful. You're gonna blow a transmission the way you keep grinding those gears, and half of Dakota's misses were because you didn't have the pod oriented the way she needed it. Understand this, both of you. For a gundog to be an effective weapon, its pilot and gunner need to operate as a single symbiotic unit. If you two can't learn to play well together, this is not going to work. Dakota turned on Runyon. She's right about the misses. I told you, I can't aim if you keep jerking us around and don't point me in the right direction. Don't blame me for your misses, Runyon shot back. And for what it's worth, I could drive better if you weren't constantly in my ear telling me to- Enough! Rosie snapped. Figure it out, and soon. If I had any kind of bench, I'd flunk you both and give the cockpit to the next two guys. But I don't. I'm stuck with you. Three days from now, you move out, ready or not. If you're ready, you might just survive this thing. If you're not, I can promise you you won't. 
figure it out. Later that evening, as Dakota was preparing for bed, Rosie materialized before her. Runyon was already asleep in his bunk, farther down the dorm. Do we have a problem? Rosie asked her daughter. With what? Dakota said. With you and Runyon. You've been giving that boy a hard time ever since he showed up here. My guess is, long before that, too. He's fine, said Dakota. We'll be fine. We can do this. You've been snapping at him, bickering, generally making him feel like you don't want him here at all. That boy went through hell to get here. The least you can do is make him feel welcome. Is there some problem you have with him that I don't know about? Because if there is, I need to know about it before we go out into the field. It's nothing, said Dakota, trying to busy herself with folding her clothes. Why don't you like him? Rosie asked. Because he's not Falk, Dakota wanted to scream. Falk's the one who's supposed to be here with me, not him. But instead she said nothing, threw back the blankets on her bunk and climbed in. The dorm lights dimmed to nothing, but there was still a shimmer of Rosie's holographic image looking at her. It was like a bedside lamp Dakota couldn't switch off. Just give him a chance, said Rosie, her tone softer now. He seems like a very nice young man. Dakota rolled over in bed, facing away from Rosie. Her mother's commanding officer voice returned. Dakota, she said. This has to work. Because if it doesn't, it's not just your own lives you're risking. It's mine. Dakota turned back to face her. What do you mean? I mean, I'm coming with you. You'll have no chance out there without me. Before you depart, my program will be transferred from the facility's mainframe to the M-151 onboard computer. We all live or die together. Now get some sleep. And then she was gone, her haze of light dissipating, leaving the room in full darkness. But it would be a good while longer before Dakota slept. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Command Unit Report. Unit Rank. War Commander. First Class. Designation... 
Mac 3948765128743 Filed 11801541 MKST 9624.955 This unit concludes supervision of standard interrogation of all prisoners at Labor Township number 7424 Sector 11 to determine whereabouts of escape subjects number 81-47676 Bregman and number 39-90983 Falk. Interrogations unproductive. Neurogenic imager indicates all prisoners answered truthfully. This unit concludes enhanced interrogation of prisoner number 81-47675. Samuel Bregman, older sibling of number 81-47676, Bregman. Prisoner demonstrates exceptional resistance to questioning neurogenic image successfully reproduces partial image of illustration formerly imprinted on prisoner's right arm. Initial analysis suggests Cartographic in nature, image currently subject to detailed analysis likely to yield subjects number 81-47676 Bregman and number 39-90983 Falk. Destination. This unit requests military strike force classification A to converge on subject destination once positively identified. Stand by. Chapter 18 They spent three days completing construction of the gundog prototype and conducting systems checks. Giant scaffolds were rolled out on either side of the Leviathan, allowing Dakota and Runyon to access any part of it from without or within. Under Rosie's close supervision, Runyon tested and installed the last of the critical electronic components that she had fabricated using the base's automated manufacturing systems during her time in isolation. Dakota attached hoses that allowed coolant to be piped into the M-151's weapons and drive systems, and cables to supply it with the most recent build of the operations firmware that Rosie was confident was as bug-free as she could make it. But it wasn't until Dakota climbed up to the cockpit located way up near what would have been the head of this colossus, that she noticed the letters stenciled on the armor plating, just below the pilot and gunner seats. Lieutenant Colonel Rosalind Bregman. Rosie. Lieutenant Eugene Falk. Falcon. She ran her fingers across the letters of her mother's name, then settled into her gunnery seat and got a feel for it. It was better cushioned than the one in the simulator pod, and as she sank into it, she felt a sudden rush. The gundog was still powered down, idle, the instrument panels before her dark and lifeless. Yet, as she sat up here looking down on the hangar below, her hands resting on the dual sticks that controlled the weapons, for the first time in her life, she understood what it felt like to be powerful. Or at least, something other than powerless. She suddenly became impatient to get this thing finished, take it out into the world and see what it could do, to fulfill her promise to Sam, 
and smash some mech motherfuckers into junk. How's that feel? Dakota turned sharply to see Runyon standing on the ladder just outside the cockpit. Sorry if I startled you, he said. I called on my way up, but seems like you were miles away. Okay if I join you? May as well. You're going to have to sooner or later, she said. Just don't stand on the little fin there where it says no step. Thanks, said Runyon. Not sure if I would have figured that out on my own. He clambered into the pod and settled into the pilot seat just behind her. Seat's more comfortable than the simulator, he said. Dakota grinned. My butt's already very grateful. Since Runyon was behind her, she couldn't see his reaction, but his silence suggested she might have made him feel uncomfortable. Sure enough, when she turned around in her seat to face him, he looked away and pretended to go over his instrumentation panels. Runyon, she said. I know I don't always show it, but I really am glad you're here. Thank you. His face reddened. And now he looked at her, right at her, as though the kind word from her had given him permission, finally, to do so. Nowhere else in the world I'd rather be, he said with a smile. Sitting in the cockpit of a giant war machine is tough to beat, I'll grant you that. <laughs> I don't mean that, said Runyon. I mean here, with you. A moment of silence passed between them, and now Dakota was the uncomfortable one. But Runyon soon was his old self-conscious self again, looking around for something, anything but her. I, I should check the fuel pot again, he said, and he climbed back out of his seat and onto the ladder. Dakota wanted to say something more, and was about to, but by the time it reached her lips, he was gone, sliding back down the ladder to the ground far below. It wasn't until every last detail was taken care of, every moving part, electrical system, subsystem, and doohickey on the entire vehicle, all 600 tons of it, painstakingly checked and rechecked, that it was time to upload Rosie to the gundog's onboard computer. And with that came risk. She explained that she wasn't like a regular computer program and that she was not replicable. That is, it wasn't possible to transfer her to the gundog and still keep a working copy here on the facility's mainframe. She was, in that sense, very much like a real person, one of a kind, irreplaceable which meant that if something went wrong with the upload, if the transfer didn't go cleanly, or if somehow Rosie's program dropped along the way, there would be no recovering her. Dakota's mother would die again. Runyon ran a test version of the transfer program a dozen times before they were confident enough to try it with the real thing. I'll be offline for about six minutes while my program copies over. Rosie explained. Try not to break anything while I'm gone. Neither Dakota nor Runyon, standing beside the control terminal, felt much like laughing. As much as Rosie had tried to assure them that the procedure was safe, they all knew that this had never been done before. And, until it was done, everything about the procedure, including its safety, was only a matter of theory. They were gambling with Rosie's life, and they knew it. 
I'm ready when you are, said Rosie. Runyon's finger hovered over the key that would start the procedure. Then he took it away and looked at Dakota. I think you should do it, he said. She's your mother. This is your area, she said. You're the one qualified. Everything's already done. All you have to do is push the button. I don't think... Will one of you just push the damn button? Rosie snapped. Let's do it together, said Runyon. Dakota nodded, and the two of them placed their index fingers over the transfer key, side by side. Three. Two. One, said Runyon, and they both pushed. Rosie's holographic image dissipated, and she was gone. There was nothing more to do but wait. How long has it been? Dakota asked, after what felt like at least five minutes. Runyon checked the display. Forty-five seconds. Relax. She's gonna be fine. Don't say that, Dakota snapped. Don't make promises you're not sure you can keep. You don't know that. She stopped herself. This wasn't his fault. None of it was. All he'd ever done was try to help her. She needed something to take her mind off this interminable wait. Tell me about your mother, she said. She wasn't sure why that was the thought that popped into her head. Probably because her own mother, who had been dead to her for almost her entire life, was quite possibly about to be taken from her again. Runyon blinked, taken off guard. Maybe by the question. Maybe because she'd spoken to him like a person. An equal, which was rare. I never knew her, he said. My father, either. My earliest memory is living inside a refugee colony somewhere up north, with a bunch of other orphan kids rounded up from who knows where. There was a family who tried to take care of us, keep us safe. We used to move from place to place a lot, until the mech finally caught up with us. Everyone in that family was too old, so they never made it to the township. I did, along with all the other orphans. He looked her in the eye. You don't know how lucky you are to still have family, Dakota. You really don't. Dakota thought about that. She had never considered anything about her life lucky. Until now. You know, she said. When we're out there, trying to steer and shoot that damn thing together. Every second's gonna count. And... Dakota's kind of a mouthful. She paused. You should call me Dak. Runyon smiled, totally disarmed. But this time he didn't look away. A chime sounded, and a green light began flashing on the display. That's it, he said. Transfer's done. Dakota leaned forward, anxious. Did it work? It says it did. He looked up at the gun dog, looming over them. Rosie? Are you there? Nothing. No response. Dakota's stomach tightened into a knot. Mom? Can you hear us?
That's Lieutenant Colonel Bregman to you, came the reply. Runyon smiled wide with relief. Dakota clapped her hand over her mouth, overcome with emotion. The voice was familiar, but the source of it was not. It was coming from the gundog cockpit. Dakota and Runyon raced to climb up there. The instruments and holographic displays were lighting up, coming alive with cheerful affirmative chiming sounds as systems came online. And then, a hologram resolved in the air before Dakota. A face. Rosie. Be honest. How much did you miss me? She asked. Dakota beamed. Forgetting herself for a moment, she reached out to touch her mother's face, but only felt an electrostatic tingle in her fingers as they passed right through the hologram. Are you... Okay? She asked. I'm fine, said Rosie. I already ran the diagnostic suite, and everything checks out. And I feel like myself, too. A little cramped in here. I don't quite know how to describe that, but I'm good. It worked. Good to have you back, ma'am, said Runyon. Thank you, Runyon. I do believe we are as ready as we're ever going to be. God help us. Rosie directed them to a locker room, where a pair of one-piece bodysuits had been stored away in vacuum-sealed bags. They retired to privacy to put them on, then returned to reveal themselves to one another. The suits were deep black, and almost embarrassingly form-fitting, but incredibly comfortable. Like having a second armored skin. Like the M151 itself, these suits are prototypes, Rosie explained. The fabric's a carbon fiber composite weave, made of the same stuff used to coat the M-151's armor. Once you plug them into your cockpit seats, they'll charge with an electromagnetic current capable of absorbing several hits from mech energy weapons. At least, the smaller ones. They'll also make you as difficult for mech sensors to track as the gundog itself. Dakota passed her hand over the badge on her left breast. It was a pair of gold-woven wings, and beneath that, the word Bregman. Originally meant for me, said Rosie. Funny how things work out. Runyon's suit had a badge, too. It said, Falk. Dakota felt a sudden emptiness at the sight of it, and turned away. Runyon must have noticed, because he tore the badge from the Velcro panel and set it down. I'll take the suit, he said. But that's not mine. Somehow seeing the badge, the name Falk, lying alone and abandoned on a bench only made Dakota feel worse. Let's go, she said. We're ready. Not quite, said Rosie. We still have one more thing to do before we leave, and this part you'll enjoy. Once again they stood before the gundog. We never gave her a name, said Rosie. And now, I'm glad we didn't. As you two are the operators, that honor properly belongs to you. What was yours called? Dakota asked. The one you fought with, at Bismarck. Protector, said Rosie. For all the good it did. But it's bad luck to use the same name twice. You two need to come up with something new. Dakota looked at Runyon, who shrugged. 
<laughs> not really my area, he said. If it's all right, I'll, I'll defer to you. Naming giant weapons systems wasn't Dakota's area either, but she gave it some thought. I have an idea, she said, before asking Rosie to direct her to where the stencil templates and paints were kept. Then she climbed the scaffold and spray-painted the new name on the gundog's armored torso. When she was done, she climbed back down to admire her work. What do you think? she said. I love it, said Runyon. I think it's perfect, said Rosie. Though it was her own work, Dakota agreed. It was perfect. Just one word, but perfect. Liberator. Chapter 19 L minus 30 seconds. Rosie's voice was piped into Runyon's earpiece as he sat in the pilot's chair. As gunner, Dakota sat forward and slightly below him, a position that afforded her the best view of the battlefield through the reinforced superglass dome that surrounded them both. But Runyon could still see plenty well enough to navigate and maneuver. Yet, at the moment, all he could see was a few dim hangar lights. That, plus a cluster of heads-up displays that were projected into his helmet visor, feeding him all kinds of sensor data. The gundog set atop a hydraulic platform that had been raised to the bottom of a tall elevator shaft. Its fusion drive hummed gently, idling in neutral, waiting for its pilot to engage it. L-20, Runyon shifted anxiously in his seat. In less than twenty seconds, they'd leave the safety of this place and be deposited back into the real world. A world swarming with an enemy he'd spent a lifetime learning to fear. Listen, both of you, said Rosie. I know you're feeling a little nervous right now. That's natural. But you need to trust me. Trust this machine. And most of all, trust yourselves. The road here wasn't easy. But I promise you, the road ahead's gonna be a lot more fun. Now. Let's go start some trouble. Daylight streamed in from above as the armored shield doors began to grind open. Fallen tree branches and other debris from the forest floor falling through the widening gap. And Runyon felt the ground lurch beneath him as the hydraulic lift raised the gundog up the shaft, through the open doors, and out into the sunlight. It was the first real natural light he'd seen in almost two weeks and even though his helmet's photosensitive visor automatically dimmed to shield his eyes, it was momentarily blinding. They were still rising, higher and higher, the mountain forest all around them now, the treetops falling away below them. In the hangar, it had been hard to gauge the true size of the Liberator, because it had only ever been surrounded by other artificial structures, hangar walls and scaffolds. Now, out in the natural world, Runyon truly appreciated just how immense it really was. It towered over the landscape, and the ground felt dizzyingly far beneath him. And then the hydraulic lift finally stopped with a jolt. For a moment, all was silent and still, and Runyon watched a flock of birds that had fled from the noise and vibration of the gundog's ascent. Pilot! barked Rosie. What are you waiting for? We've got shit to do. 
Our destination's already locked into the NAVCOM, so all you need to do is steer. Come on now. Just like in the simulator. One foot in front of the other. Runyon grasped the control sticks, felt the pedals beneath his feet, hesitant. This wasn't just like in the simulator. This was real. And even in the sim, he'd many times piloted the gundog into a ditch, or failed to evade incoming fire well enough to prevent it from taking critical damage. The only cost then had been a screen that flashed the words, Critical Failure, Simulation Terminated. That, and a lecture from Rosie. But from this point forward, there would be no simulation reset, no admonishment, no let's go again. If he screwed up this time, he, Dakota, and Rosie would all be dead. He applied pressure to the left pedal. The gundog lurched forward as it took a step with its leviathan left leg. And then he stopped. He had to. He had to breathe. Controlling any one of the Liberator's articulated parts was simple enough, but trying to get all of those parts to move in concert like a single entity was very different. In the sim, he had eventually gotten the hang of it, and by the end of training, he'd had the simulated machine turning and ducking and weaving as it should. But now, having taken only one step in the real thing, he realized that though the sim was a close approximation, it wasn't quite the same. He felt like a beginner all over again, a toddler taking his first faltering steps. Don't fight it, Rosie said, coaching him in his earpiece. Remember, the machine is an extension of yourself, your own body. Think of it that way, and your movements will feel more natural. I've never been very comfortable in my own body either, said Runyon which drew a chuckle from Dakota up front. He wished Rosie could just drive the thing herself, but he knew that was impossible. I can only monitor systems and sensors and run damage control and repairs, she'd explained back at the start of training, which already felt so long ago. All the motor functions and weapons only respond to direct human input. That was the only way to be sure the mech couldn't hack into the control systems and turn the gun dogs against us. Besides, she'd added, we never anticipated the need for a holographic lieutenant colonel to serve as pilot. Runyon breathed in deeply and sent the Liberator forward again, trying to build some momentum, some rhythm. It was awkward at first, but he gained confidence with each step, and soon he had the Liberator striding across the forested plain crushing trees and underbrush beneath its feet like a mythological giant. Still, Rosie continued to harangue him. Watch your bearing. Don't try to run before you can walk. The gyroscopics can only compensate for so much, and if this thing winds up on her ass, she's a bitch to get upright again. And don't maybe lay off him a little, Mom? Dakota cut in. He's doing fine. You're just making him nervous. Runyon looked down in surprise at his gunner. She'd actually risen to his defense. He felt a sudden warmth in his cheeks at the Watch out! Runyon, momentarily distracted, had failed to see the giant rock face the Liberator was ambling toward. Adrenaline coursing through him, he applied some deft movements of the control sticks to sidestep nimbly around the obstacle without breaking stride. 
He did it so well, it might have appeared that he'd done it deliberately to show off. Though, he surely shattered that illusion with his deep sigh of relief. Nice save, said Rosie. But let's try to avoid needing too many more of those. This is only going to get harder. Dakota, with nothing to shoot at and thus nothing to do, was looking at her aft display. Who were they? she asked. The four faces. Runyon checked his own rear view and saw the four giant granite figures receding behind him. They were some of our greatest leaders, long ago, Rosie replied. Someday I'll teach you about them, after we've sent the mech running back to their own world. She said it with such confidence that Runyon almost believed it. The Liberator had been moving steadily north for about an hour when it picked up its first mech. This had been the plan. Head into open territory where sight lines were clear, and there was a good chance of attracting their first live practice target. Contact! 44 degrees at 2,000 meters, Rosie announced sharply, bucking up Dakota, who'd had little to do so far and had been mainly concentrating on finding ways to shift her weight in the gunnery chair to keep her butt from falling asleep. She sat up, alert, and instantly forgot everything she'd spent the past ten days intensively learning. Her hands trembled as they went to the fire controls. I don't see it. Two thousand meters is BVR, but I'm picking it up on LIDAR, said Rosie. Size and speed says it's a surveyor, which means it'll have eyes on us soon. Closing fast. Eighteen hundred meters. Runyon. Bring us about to forty-five degrees. Let's take it head on. Perfect opportunity for our first live fire weapons test. Yes, ma'am, said Runyon and twisted the Liberator around to its new heading. Dakota, magnify your main viewer. You should be able to see it now, said Rosie. Dakota had to pause to remember which control did what, but then it came to her, and she was zooming her forward view so that a portion of it looked as though she was looking through a telescope. And there it was, a single mech surveyor, moving across the plane toward them. Confirm range and closure to target. Rosie ordered. Dakota scanned the data that streamed on the holographic display. Uh, range now 1450. Closing at 35 kph, bearing zero, dead ahead. Good, said Rosie. It's already in range of our long guns. But let's let it get a little closer. Have some fun with it. What if it transmits our position? Runyon asked. I'm counting on it, said Rosie. Bring him on. More targets for us to work out the kinks on. Dakota found her mother's confidence strangely infectious. All her life, she'd been trained to feel nothing but terror and panic when encountering a mech in the open, even at long range. But here she was now, for the first time, barreling fearlessly toward one, and hoping for more. Eight hundred meters, she said. She deactivated the magnified display, knowing she'd be able to see her target with the naked eye very soon now. And sure enough, moments later, there it was. A speck cresting a hill, growing in size as it advanced. Poor metal bastard's not gonna know what hit it, said Rosie. Dakota, gunner's choice. What'll it be? Dakota had a dizzying array of weapons at her disposal, but she'd always favored the twin chain guns 
They were effective at both medium and short range, and they had a high rate of fire, with just enough recoil to give really satisfying feedback every time she squeezed off a few rounds. In the sim, her arms felt like jelly after firing them for extensive periods, and she loved it. She flipped the toggle to bring them online. Good choice, said Rosie. Remember, short, controlled bursts. Better accuracy and fewer shell casings for the reclaimer to mop up after. And remember to lead your target. Don't- I got this, Mom! Dakota inserted her arms into the fire control armatures and gripped the controls firmly. Her palms were sweating. But only a little. As she moved the armatures, the Liberator's heavy arms mimicked her movements, swinging into firing position. The targeting crosshairs in her helmet visor found their way over the incoming mech drone and locked on. This one's a sitting duck, said Rosie. Have fun. Dakota depressed the triggers halfway, sending the barrels of the 75 cal chain guns spinning up. As they did, she watched a small gauge in the corner of her visor creep upward, indicating how long the guns could be kept fully spun up before overheating. Plenty of time. Now in mutual firing range, announced Rosie, just as the mech drone shot its beam weapon, which deflected harmlessly off the Liberator's lower right leg. No damage, said Rosie. Flea bite. Let's give it a little something back. Dakota? The Surveyor. Closing faster now. Fired again. This time with its secondary weapon. A squat submachine gun deployed from its underside that fired vicious little metal pellets capable of eviscerating a soft target. But they, too, bounced uselessly off the Liberator's armor. No damage, reported Rosie again. This thing's got nothing against a hard target. It's used to beating up on squishy ones. Dakota, return fire! Dakota kept her fingers half-pressed on the triggers as the barrel spun halfway to overheat. She could fire at any time, but she wanted the mech to get closer. Wanted to look right into its hellish red eye before she opened up on it. She wanted it close enough to watch it die in detail. 150 meters, Dakota! What are you waiting for? Fire on that- Dakota pulled hard on both triggers, and the chain guns came to life. The control armatures juddered violently as the Liberator fired a pair of blinding three-second bursts that shredded the mech drone like it was made of cardboard, reducing it to twisted shards of molten metal junk. On instinct, Dakota kept firing for a few moments more. No mech would ever be dead enough for her, but there was no need. She was succeeding only in tearing great chunks of earth from the blackened crater around the scrapped drone. Ease up, ease up, said Rosie. I think you got him. As Dakota let up on the controls, she once again felt that satisfying jellied feeling rippling up and down her arms. The chain guns' temperature gauge dropped as the barrels spun down again. It was all over so quickly. Dakota exhaled, realizing only now that she'd been holding her breath ever since the mech had first come into visual range. She slumped back into her seat and looked out the cockpit window at the charred, smoking hole in the ground. Rosie barked into her earpiece. Look alive! Here comes its backup. Fast mover at bearing 185. Distance 4,000 meters. 3,500. Get ready for scuttlers. Dakota leaned forward in her chair, craning her neck to get a look at the incoming mech aircraft. It came soaring overhead, 
raining spherical pods from its belly as it passed. The aircraft was gone as quickly as it had arrived, but the dozens of pods it had left in its wake were now falling to the ground, both in front of and behind the Liberator. Tracking 48 individual targets, sending them to fire control, said Rosie. Dakota, make the call. The answer came to Dakota more quickly this time. She remembered this one from sim training. She toggled fire control from the chain guns to the rocket pods. Her visor's targeting display switched from two targeting crosshairs to dozens of smaller ones, which automatically tracked and locked onto the pods as they fell to Earth. Dakota took a moment to watch them fall. The last time she'd seen scuttlers dropping from the sky, she'd been running in terror. Her and Falk. The two of them had been lucky to escape with their lives, and that sickening feeling of imminent, certain death had haunted her for days afterwards. She still had the slightest hint of sunburn on one side of her face, thanks to the scuttler beam that had nearly taken her life. But the feeling she had now, as these pods fell before her, was not terror, not panic. It was excitement. Come on, then. Don't wait for them to hit the ground, Rosie urged. You can take them in the air. Light them up. Dakota shook her arms loose to get some feeling back in them, then retook the fire controls. One trigger pull sent a dozen miniature rockets spiraling from the Liberator's left shoulder-mounted pod, and every last one of them found and destroyed its target. A second pull sent a similar volley from the right shoulder pod, reducing the rest of the spheres to scrap before a single one touched the ground. Runyon, are you sitting comfortably back there? Rosie barked. More targets closing aft. This baby ain't a contortionist. Swing her around so Dakota can get a shot. Runyon cursed under his breath and rotated the Liberator above the waist so that its torso, arms, and head now faced directly backward. The spheres behind them had touched down and broken open to release the spider-like scuttlers within. They quickly spread out and began moving rapidly toward the Liberator in unpredictable zigzag patterns. The targeting system tracked them all, but they were so fast that they kept falling out of lock and had to be constantly reacquired. Dakota fired another rocket volley, taking out ten of them. The rest kept coming, firing their heat beams now, the searing energy absorbed by the Liberator's armored plating. Very minor damage, but those scuttler beams are no joke even against armor. Rosie announced. Dakota! Let's make this quick! Dakota fired two more volleys, taking out another dozen scuttlers. That left only two, but they were inside minimum rocket range now, too close to target. Thinking fast, Dakota toggled back to the chain guns and shredded one of them, but the last one disappeared from view beneath her, scraping at the Liberator's left foot. It's right under me. I can't get a shot! Dakota cried. I got this one said Runyon calmly. He raised the Liberator's leg, and then brought it down hard, on top of the last scuttler, crushing it underfoot like a bug. All targets destroyed, said Rosie. Good work, both of you. Dakota slumped back into her chair again, and Runyon gave her an appreciative clap on the shoulder. Without thinking, she reached back and gripped his hand in hers for a moment before releasing it. Nice job she said. How'd that feel? Rosie asked. There was no simple answer to that. Dakota was feeling so many things at once, they were hard to separate. Exhilaration, relief, 
exuberance. More interesting to her than the presence of so many new emotions was the absence of other, far more familiar ones. In spite of a lifetime of deeply ingrained fear of the mech, not once during the entire encounter had she felt afraid. She'd been girded not only by the six hundred tons of war machine encasing her, but more importantly, by the comforting, confident presence of her mother. Dakota had felt powerless her entire life. Now she was powerful. The mech were no longer something to be fled from, but something to be hunted down and destroyed. She couldn't wait to do it again. And again. And again. And again. My butt keeps falling asleep, said Runyon. All of this state-of-the-art R&D and they couldn't figure out a decent chair? Should have brought some kind of cushion or something. <laughs> Dakota laughed. For the first time in what felt like forever. Gundog was created and written by Gary Witta and performed by Shannon Woodward. Special appearance by Troy Baker. Music by Austin Wintory. Edited by David Gatewood. Sound editing by Adam Nickerson. Video editing by Chandana Ekanayaka. Five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.